0: In your Bible, where that outline is being passed out, turn to Colossians chapter 3, but also note that uh, we're going to look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 tonight as well. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through verse 21, will serve kind of as our model tonight as we look at the issue of proclamation. How do I communicate effectively? We've talked about uh, the overall interpretive process. We looked at the issue of observation. What do I see? We looked at the issue of interpretation, what does it mean? We looked at the issue of application, how does it work in real life? And now tonight we look at the issue of proclamation, how do I communicate effectively? I don't think I've ever had uh, too many original thoughts, but one thing that I have said to my preaching students uh, over the last uh, five or six years that I've never read anywhere else, so maybe this is the only thing I ever did actually come up with, but I'm sure I'll read it in a book somewhere one of these days that will predate me and destroy my uh, aspiration in this area. But I tell my students this, what you say is more important than how you say it. But how you say it has never been more important. In other words, I would rather hear someone up here stumble and fumble their way through the Bible than to have someone up here who is very eloquent, very gifted as an orator, but they say nothing of any eternal significance or value. So give me the the former rather than the latter, but there does not need to be an either-or kind of option. So we need to understand that what we say, teaching effectively and accurately the Word of God, is more important than how we say it, but... How we say it has never been more important because our world is inundated with those who are gifted in terms of their communication skills. Furthermore, you yourselves know that if you want to hear outstanding, phenomenal, off-the-scale Bible teaching, all you've got to do is turn on the TV. Turn on the radio or get on the Internet, and off you are going until Jesus comes back. Because it is now, uh, we were flooded with that kind of Bible information. And yet, the fact of the matter is, it's one thing to hear somebody on a computer... It's one thing to see someone on television or to listen to someone on radio. It's a different thing to see someone in flesh and blood pouring out their heart before you concerning what they believe about the Word of God. And so I don't think it is ever going to be the case uh, that preaching from a pulpit or teaching in a classroom is going to be replaced by the Internet or the television or by the radio. But having said that... We need to be the most effective communicators of biblical truth that we can possibly be. And so one facet of that is the outlining of a passage. You've done your observation. You've worked your way through the text in terms of the interpretation. Now, how is it that you're going to package this that you have learned so that you can then effectively communicate it? Well, they're on page two outlining the study and overview. Let me just note very quickly the 12-step process that I follow when it comes to putting together any type of Bible teaching that I do, whether it be to 3 or or 3,000 or somewhere in between. Uh, The first thing I always do is I pray over what I do. I consecrate everything I do to the Lord. I often share with people that what I do in the study is not hard work. It's an act of worship. And I, indeed, am asking God first and foremost, foremost, to take what is in that passage and teach it. If he doesn't teach it to anybody else, at least teach it to me. Change me. Impact my life if no one else gets touched by my teaching of the Scripture. Then secondly, I let my exegesis, or if you like, my observations and interpretations drive and determine a teaching outline. In other words, I'm going to allow the text to develop an outline for me. I'm not going to superimpose an external uh, outline on that particular passage. Thirdly, I will have as many major points as the text naturally demands. Now, this text is probably one of the easiest in all the Bible to see this because you can look at it, verse 18 through 21 of Colossians 3. Verse 18, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So verse 18 is talking to who? Wives, anybody else? No. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. It's talking to husbands, nobody else. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Children, nobody else. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And so if I were teaching tonight from this particular text, I think it's crystal clear. There would be four major points, something addressing wives, something addressing husbands, something addressing children, and something addressing parents, or in particular here, addressing fathers. So you want to have as many major points. As your text naturally demands. My uh, mentor in preaching, Jerry Vine, says you're looking for what he calls the seams in the text. Or as he likes to use the analogy, he said it's like splitting a piece of wood. Uh, Find the grain, find the seams, and split the wood right there. All right, then, number four. Make sure your major points. And your subpoints arise clearly and naturally out of the text. In other words, you should be able to see your outline in the text. In other words, I ought to be able to not even have this piece of paper in front of me, look at the text and realize... Therefore, people that are being addressed in this passage, wives, verse 18, husbands, verse 19, children, verse 20, and fathers, verse 21. I then may have enough information in the text to even develop sub points related to each of the main points as well. And you can see that in the outline that I've given you, I did that. It's very clear in verse 18, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I could have said, point number one, wives submit to your husbands, but I I knew that was a little bit harsh, a little bit strong. Sometimes people won't listen to what follows because they hate the word submit. So I changed it and used the word yield. Uh, Actually, the word submit is more accurate to the text, but the word yield is actually a pretty good explanation of what it means to have a submissive attitude. But I didn't ignore it completely. I point out that first of all, wives will give their submission to their husbands when they yield. And secondly, they will give their adoration to the Lord. You say, how do you get that? Well, wives submit to your own husbands. There's the first subpoint. As is fitting in the Lord, there's the second subpoint. In other words, when a wife is submissive to her husband, she will also bring glory, adoration, praise to the name of God. And so, points and subpoints should arise naturally and clearly out of your text of Scripture. Number five, and this is just a Danny Aiken. Uh, uh, principle here, but what I think that is wise, state your points in the present tense and always do so in complete sentences. Be clear, concise, and true to the text. In other words, less words is better than more words. Clear, striking Pointed vocabulary is better than vague and fuzzy vocabulary. Furthermore, we speak in the present tense because we're speaking to the audience that we're talking to right now. So we don't want to talk in the past tense. We want to talk in the present tense. Furthermore, complete sentences will force you to think clearly. I don't like... Phraseological outlining where you talk, for example, about the cause of the issue, the cost of the issue, and the cure of the issue. I don't think phrases help. I think you want to force yourself to know so well your text of Scripture that you can articulate in a nice, concise Clear, present tense, sentence, what this text is addressing and talking about. All right? Number six, make your points the application of the message. In other words, let your points inform, instruct, and inspire your people as to what they should do. In other words, some pastors and some teachers will explain the text. Then if they've got time, they will apply the text. I find that to be a very unhelpful pattern. It's much better to kind of what I call weave everything together so that your exposition and your application are given together. So if I were preaching this text or teaching this text tonight, I would say, all right, there are four things I want you to learn and four things I want you to do in the home and in the family life that God has given you. Number one, wives. You yield to your husbands. That is both the, the, ex, uh, the, the essence of the text, and also it is the application of that text as well. Husbands, I want you to love your wives. Now, again, this is an easy text to apply this to and to demonstrate this by. But again, what we want is our application to be woven into the points of our outline. Number seven. Make sure your major points connect with the title and what we call the major idea of the text, the MIT, and the major idea of the message, or the MEM. In other words, both the major idea of the text and the major idea of the message should be fed by your major points. I call this, by the way, Pyramidic Preaching. In other words, to the best of my ability, I try to put the major idea in my title. I don't try to be cute. But I do try to be clear. You say, so you think this text is talking about when Christ is Lord of the home? I sure do. fact, I think I can make a doggone good argument. That's exactly what he's talking about. In fact, very interestingly, twice in this paragraph, he uses the phrase, in the Lord, to the Lord. If you look down to verse 23, where he is concluding this whole section, there he is talking to slaves and masters. But verse 23 would apply beyond that. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Furthermore, if you go back to the prior context and you look at chapter 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing and so on. So when the word of Christ dwells in you richly, when you are doing everything as to the Lord, then I would argue that that is when Christ is Lord of the home. So if you want to see what a home life looks like, that is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There it is in point one, two, three, and four. So the sub points feed the major point. The major point feeds the title. And to the best that you can, put your main idea of the text and your main idea of your message or your study in your title. Then number eight, make sure your sub points connect with the major points they support. That's self-evident. Then number nine, I call this the Charlotte Aiken rule. Because over the years, my wife has said to me, when I have always asked her, as all preachers do, when I get through, honey, how did I do? There have been those occasions when she has said to me, sometimes when you preach, you make me tired. Now, I don't think that's a compliment. I don't know about you, but that didn't really bless me all that much. At least she didn't say I was boring or dull or I taught heresy. But she will say, sometimes you make me tired. And I said, well, why do I make you tired? And she says, well, number one, you talk awful fast. In fact, you talk much faster than any boy from Georgia I've ever met in my life. And secondly, you just give us so much information. You just feel compelled, don't you, to tell us everything you've studied. And I will say, no, sweetheart, I left a lot of it back in the warehouse. Well, you could have fooled me. And so I've come to understand that if you overload your people, With more than they can intellectually digest, it will fail. And no matter how hard and how much you've studied, you will not accomplish what you're trying to do. So it's better, again, to give them less that's clear than more that's fuzzy. And giving them information that may be very interesting, but really is not all that crucial to the explanation of the text. Furthermore, that's why I do what I do. Teaching outlines are a great idea because if people both see it and hear it, they retain a lot more of the teaching material that they have received. Next uh, fall, beginning in August, for a year on Wednesday nights, I'm going to teach through the Psalms. I've prayed about it, talked to Brother Bill, so for a year... We're going to work our way through the Psalms. Not all 150 of them, but a large number of them. And I probably will expand the information I give out each week. I'll provide an outline, but probably there'll be some additional information within that outline because I think that will be an aid to helping you grasp... And not only grasp, but comprehend, and not only comprehend, but keep the information that you learn as we study through uh, the magnificent songbook of the Bible. All right? Number ten. You then cover and fill the skeleton of your outline with what I call the meat and the marrow of your exegesis. And let me go ahead and put number 11 in there and we'll come back. Write out then your study, merging all aspects of your preparation with a view of number one, exalting our Lord, and number two, edifying your audience here and now. You say, what do you mean by merging the aspects of your meat and marrow or filling the skeleton with your meat and marrow? Well, that's what you've done in your observation and interpretation. So, if I were in this particular text, I would have looked up the word submit. I would have tried to figure out what he means by the phrase, it is fitting or appropriate in the Lord. You say, I can't study Greek. Yes, but you could take the New King James Version that I'm using and also read, what does the NIV say? What does the New American Standard say? What does the ESV say? What does the Message say? What does the King James say? And you can read multiple translations as well as by you very fine commentaries and look and see what they think it means about what. Uh, fitting in the Lord is. Furthermore, most of you, if not all of you, should recognize there is a parallel text to Ephesians 5, I mean to Colossians 3, 18 through 21, and that is Ephesians 5, 21 through chapter 6 and verse 4. So if you would like Paul himself to expand out for you what it means for a wife to submit and a husband to love, especially that, because in Ephesians 5, from verse 25 through 33, He expounds upon what it means for a husband to love his wife. And so I'm going to look up and and compliment the idea of submitting as fitting in the Lord. Looking up verse 19, love your wives and what? Don't be bitter toward them. Verse 20, children, obey your parents. Look at that next phrase, in all things. But what does that mean? Do you obey mom and dad if they ask you to do something that's illegal, immoral, unethical, unbiblical? It says in all things, but does in all things mean in every single incidence with no uh, qualification whatsoever? I would argue no. I would argue no. Same way with a wife. Does a wife submit to her husband in everything? As Ephesians 5 says, if her husband asks her to do something illegal or immoral, I would argue no. You say, why not? Because there's a higher Lord than a wife's husband, and his name is Jesus. And if you have to make a decision between submitting to Jesus and submitting to your husband, then your husband loses every single time. If a child has to make a decision between obeying God and obeying mom and dad, mom and dad lose. Mom and dad lose. And so I've got to grasp what does it mean in all things. But then what does it also mean that it's well pleasing to the Lord? Then verse 21. I'm going to do a study of that word provoke. And I'm going to try to figure out also what is meant by that phrase, lest they become discouraged. And so I'm going to study the words. I'm going to, by the way, you would know this if you could read Greek. There are five imperatives in verses 18 through 21. These are not just regular verbs. They're imperatives. They're words of command. Wives submit. Husbands, love. Husbands, don't be bitter. Children, obey. Fathers, do not provoke. And so God is not asking. God is not suggesting. God commands each member of the family to fulfill the precise and specific assignment that He has given them. Then step number 12, practice reading your text repeatedly and out loud. You say, why? Because I believe it is a sin to read God's Word poorly. You want to know where the punctuation is. You want to know how certain words are to be pronounced. And you want to make sure you read God's Word well. Look at page 3 then. We'll just drop down to letter B because letter A reiterates much of what I just said. Why is outlining important? Well, it's foundational for effective communication. You ever listen to any effective communicator, they have some kind of outline that helps them get started, it helps them get through their material, and it helps them get to the end. And so it's a foundational for effective communication. It's helpful for understanding because the human mind seeks unity and the human mind, number four, seeks order. That's the way our minds function by the way God put them together. Number five, it helps us to know how we have gotten where we are and where we are wanting to go. So if I'm in this outline and I'm dealing with wives first, I know next I'm going to deal with husbands. And after that, I know I'm going to deal with children. And after that, I know I'm going to deal I mean, with parents. And after that, I'm going to deal with children. After that, I'm through. Time out. Time to move on. I'll have some kind of conclusion, but I kind of can pace myself then. And again, I don't care where you are. You've got to do what you do within a particular frame of reference with respect to time. Maybe for some reason you're going to be teaching someday somewhere, and though you prepared for 45 minutes, you're going to have 20. If you're going to honor the context of where you are and what's going on. Well, how are you going to get that puppy down from 45 minutes to 20 minutes? Well, you're going to cut. And you need to cut at certain places to keep yourself online and keep yourself on point so that you know where you are as you're working your way through your message. Number seven, or number six, it helps you gain a proper perspective on the text you are studying. It helps you in some ways see how the author of scripture packaged his argument and put it together. Number seven, it helps you discover the pattern. Or the order or the logic of the original author. And, of course, with Paul, that's usually quite easy. Number eight, is important because it helps us isolate the main idea of the original author. And I don't think there's any debate. He was interested in the Christian home in verses 18 through 21. And number nine. It helps us identify the main points or thoughts in the text, as well as the subpoints which explain and amplify the main points of thought. Page four, then, a simple guide for good outlining, four major ideas. I'm just going to hit this very quickly. First of all, a well-developed outline has structure, and I might also add it's going to have a parallel structure as well. If you look at this outline, the first word of each of the main points starts with the what? The wife, the husband, the children, the parents. You will then see that following each of those nouns is a verbal phrase. We'll yield, will love, will honor, will encourage. You then see that the end has a similar pattern for the direct object. Their husbands, their wives, their parents, their children. And by the way, this particular outline, at least as its major points, is not alliterated. Uh, The sub-points are, but the major points are not. And so some people are very good at alliterative outlines. Some people are not. If you're not good at it, I beg you in Jesus' name, don't do it. Just don't do it. Just put it out there like it is. Don't worry about having some kind of pretty, flowery, poetic kind of outline. People like Adrian Rogers and Jerry Vines and uh, James Merritt are phenomenal at it. People like Paige Patterson are terrible at it. He is a terrible, alliterative preacher. He's a great preacher. But his outlines are pathetic. I mean, they just are very, and you can tell him I said so, they're just weak. And so he doesn't need to be doing that kind of outline and stuff. He just needs to explain the Bible in his masterful, inimitable way. All right? So a well-developed outline has structure. Main points are the ideas designated by Roman numerals 1, 2, and 3. Sub points, a lot of people like to use A, Bs, and Cs. I like rather Arabic numbers 1, 2, and 3. And outlining beyond that is probably too detailed except in rare occasions. So just go, I've got major points, 1, 2, 3, 4, one, Whatever. I will have one, two, or one, two, three in terms of subpoints. Number two, the passage outline should honor the strategy of the original author. Point three, an effective outline deals with complete ideas and not partial thoughts or fragments. And we've talked about them being in a complete sentence. Declarative and imperative statements rather than questions are usually better. Each point should be a single idea most of the time. You want to avoid the use of compound, complex, many-worded sentences. And number four, each main point will usually have at least... Two sub points, though this is not a hard, fast rule. So, there we've talked about how to put together a teaching outline. Now, very quickly, and I could spend weeks on this. How do you get better at communicating? And what are some things you need to be on guard against in terms of ineffective communication? Bert Decker is a Christian. He wrote a book several years ago entitled, You've Got to Be Believed to Be Heard. Uh, people pay him five and ten thousand dollars to come in and sit down with them and watch them and then help them understand better how they can communicate. My good friend Al Moeller had Bert Decker come and talk to him for free, and uh, he looked at Dr. Moller and said, "Well, the first thing you need to do is smile." And Al said, "Why?" He said, because you're making my point, you don't smile very well. Furthermore, Dr. Mueller actually shaves at least twice a day and sometimes three times a day. His beard grows so fast, so he has a dark face. Well, if he's got a dark face and he doesn't smile, you think he's mad all the time. In contrast, of course, I'm Mr. Howdy Duty. I'm just the other extreme of the thing. And so you've got to learn where you've got strengths, where you've got weaknesses. And so very quickly, there are eight major areas that need to be addressed for effective communication. I'm just going to hit these very quickly. First of all, eye communication. The most effective device you have in communicating after your mouth is your eyes. So what do you need to do with your eyes? You, first of all, want to use involvement rather than intimacy or intimidation. You say, what does that mean? We'll look at number two. For effective eye communication, it's good to count to about five. In other words, if I look at you, one, two, three, four, five, you're okay. Now I'm over here, two, three, four, five, and I'm back here. It did not bother you, but if I get over here, And I just look at you, and just keep looking at you, and she knows I'm looking at her, right? And yeah, you know, it just makes you nervous as a cat. And see, she puts up the screen, and I know, oh, I'm sorry, and I have to get back in. But the other thing you want to do, is you're going to see there, is where you're just, you know, you're shifting all the time. You know, like a, now I need to be careful, I start to say a used car salesman, there might be one in here. But the fact of the matter is, if you've got shifty eyes, and you can't look people in the face... They wonder, what's what's he or she hiding? Now, understand, in a group like this, if I move from the front row to the back row, I can pick out one of you. But the fact of the matter is, all of you in that general vicinity think I'm looking at you. And the fact is, I can't see past the third row very well because I have that kind of vision issue. So the fact of the matter is, I can't see, tell about any. I can see that there's an orange shirt back there. If I squint, I can see there's kind of some kind of line in it. That's Please tell me that's not a Florida gator shirt. All right, good. Then you're okay. I'll pray for you at the end of the service, and it'll be a sweet prayer. But anyway, so the fact of the matter is, if you just look in the same area for a while, in fact, and this is on Wednesday night, but if it were Sunday morning, I would quadrant the place off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and I would just move over here for four or five. I might come here. In my mind, not not locking into because I'd forget what I'm saying, but I'm just moving from quadrant. The quadrant. Maybe I look at the same one twice before I get over here. That's okay. I know that eventually I'm going to move over here and look at this group over here. If there is actually anybody over there. If there's not anybody over there, I'm not going to look over there. That'd be really stupid. And I've seen people do that. by They come up here and there. I'm like, is there somebody up in the grandstands that we can't see? I mean, why are you doing that? And uh, I don't know if Brother Bill does or not. I don't think he does. I never turn around and talk to the choir. I never turn my back on the main congregation. If they're in the choir, that's their business. They get my backside. But the folks out here, they're getting the the, Well, maybe it's not the best side. It's the best I think I've got. So I'm going to give them the front side, alright? But beware of looking too long. Beware of eye darting or slow blink because again, people think you're hiding something. A great way for those of us that do communicate all the time, watch yourself on video. It is painful. It is agonizing. You will want to go out and commit suicide but it will make you a Better communicator because you'll see the obnoxious, odd, weird, bizarre, not helpful things that all of us will get into the habit of doing if we're not continually evaluating ourselves. All right. Secondly, posture and movement. Stand tall. One of the worst things you can do in communicating is to slouch over. Uh, To not stand erect. And so, if you're short like me, you need to get as much height as you possibly can. So you stand up. You almost think in terms of fact, one of the exercises you can do is put your back against the wall where you can actually stand. And then walk out and stand high or tall like that. Because posture communicates confidence. Communicates you feel good about what you're sharing. And it also communicates better with the audience that is watching you. Watch your lower body. Some people get into a habit. I've got a good friend. I won't call Al Muller by name, but he has a tendency to do this. He rocks back and forth. Now, if you are a rocker back and forth, it's really easy to fix that. Put one foot in front of the other. Now try to rock back and forth. You're going to fall on your backside. It it won't happen. And so if you have that tendency, put one foot in front of the other. If you have a tendency, you can always, now it's not good. Some people lock in, lock in. They never move again. But if you have a tendency to do that, then put your hands in, lock in for a while, and you'll slow yourself down in terms of your body movement that's not very helpful. You say, watch the ready position? You have the uh, pressure of your feet forward, not backwards. In other words, you let your people know, I'm excited about this. I want to talk to you about this. It's not like I'm, well, I'm not really all so sure whether I've got anything worthwhile to say or not. So I lean back from you. No, you put the uh, weight of your body on the balls of your feet, leaning forward, you'll communicate better. Then move. But let me say, beside the word move, be natural. Uh, if, if you're not the kind of person that likes to move around a lot, and, and I don't, I'm limited, then don't. Uh, but don't just lock in, hold on here, and never move any time uh, and every time. Now, actually, you say, well, can you be an effective communicator like that? John MacArthur is. I'd say Dr. John does pretty well with about 7,000 listening to him every week and millions listening to him every year. But Dr. MacArthur does not move. He gets behind the pulpit, and he ain't going anywhere. Some other people, though, are like blooming yo-yos or pinballs back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I was at a church one time. This guy got up there, and I want to tell you, he screamed and yelled, spit, foamed at the mouth, ran back and forth. I mean, he never said a word. I don't even think he ever mentioned Jesus' name, but he was kind of... So anyway, Paige Patterson, this is pick on page night. Dr. Patterson gets up, and he gets up to me and says, Well, my dear brother, I want you to know you're more fun to watch than you are to listen to. And he laughed and everybody laughed, but he didn't realize he was too dumb to know. He just got slam dunked because to say to you, you're more fun to watch than you are to listen to. That is not a compliment. Okay? so your posture, your movement. Number three, your dress. Always be appropriate. Dress and groom at the conscious level. That means you're thinking carefully, how do I look? What have I got on? If you're preaching uh, with a coat and tie, guys, you button that jacket. If you're too fat to button that jacket, then you go on a diet or get a bigger coat. And I mean that. I had a guy in preaching class one day, and he was, mm, and I said, just too fat, ain't you? And I did. We only weighed about 350 pounds, and I said, you know, you are a great communicator. And he is, I mean, he can flat preach, he can execute the text, but I said, you know what? People don't take you serious. Because you're undisciplined. Because you're mammoth. And I said, being overweight is sin. Am I incorrect? No, I'm not incorrect. It shows a lack of discipline. It shows a lack of Christian maturity. So you want to dress appropriately. If you can't button your jacket, lose some weight, preferably, or get a bigger jacket. Give people feedback. I'll let your wife especially help you guys. Be observant. Test out the first two seconds. You say, what does that mean? People make a first impression about you in two seconds. One, two, and then it's over. You don't get to make a first impression twice. It just happens one time. Now, let me say this. I'll move on. Person, this is me, but I, I'll stand by it. If you are a teacher, conservative is better than loud. And secondly, better to be overdressed than underdressed. In other words, let's say I had come tonight, and I'm looking around. Is anybody in here? I can't see. well. Does anybody have a coat and tie on here? Anybody? Hand up real quickly. No. One. Right here. Overdressed. That's okay. It's okay. If, if you are teaching tonight. If I were you, I'm just talking out loud. If I were you, I'd taken my coat off. I might come up here with just my dress shirt, my tie, and I might even rip my tie off, too, and just come up with my nice pants and my shirt. Again, but here's the problem. That's a true story. I was invited to preach at a church one time in Florida. It was in the summer. They said, hey, summer, we dress down, just come in khakis, golf shirt, life's cool. We have a great time. I said, no problem. I would do that. Although I'm not normally comfortable doing that on a Sunday morning, but I said, I would do that. Something in the back of my head had to be the Holy Spirit said, you know what? You better take a coat and tie just in case. So I pack a coat and tie just in case. Get down there. We're having dinner on Saturday night. The associate pastor says, by the way, uh, we're having the Lord's Supper in the morning. And we have the Lord's Supper, even though it's summer, all the deacons will be in coat and tie. Do you have a coat and tie? And I said, I have a coat and tie. Now, if I hadn't had one, I'd have been out to, I seriously, we, I said, we uh, need to go to a uh, men's warehouse. And we're going to get me a shirt and a tie and a coat. Because I'm not going to be up here in a golf shirt on Sunday morning, administering the Lord's table when all the deacons that are there are in coat and tie. So, again, if I'd gone in coat and tie, I got down there in coat and tie, and they said, we don't wear coat and tie in the summertime. Well, guess what? I can take my coat off. I can take my tie off. If it's not there to be up, I can't come back down. So it's better to overdress than underdress. All right, very quickly. Look at the next page, six, gestures and smile. If you have a nervous gesture, find out what it is and stop doing it. Now you say, How do you do that, Danny? You consciously think I have a bad habit of pulling on my left ear. So you take that left hand and you lock that puppy down. Or you just this bad, but stick that rascal in your pocket until you quit doing it. But you do something with that left hand. James Merritt. Pick it on him. Does this. Flips his nose all the time. It just drives me to distraction. Flip, flips his nose. Sonny, I'm going to cut that finger off one of these days. You won't be flipping nothing. But I mean, you know, if that's what you do, watch yourself. Ask your wife, sweetheart, do I do something that's just obnoxious? She'll tell you. And whatever it is, stop doing it. Secondly... Most people can't over-exaggerate when they're communicating. I mean, there might be a few guys that can get out here and just really like, that guy is a nut. But most people think they are over-exaggerating, and they're not even close. So if you're especially with larger people... Now, again, it's one thing to speak in a Sunday school classroom to 10. It's another thing to be in an auditorium of a 100. And another to be in an auditorium of a 1,000. And the bigger it is the bigger you need to get with your gesturing and your arms and so on. Just just keep that in mind. Thirdly, smile, but find out which third you are in. You say, what does that mean? Either you are a frowner, a happy face, or a medium kind of pleasant face. I'm a happy face. Dr. Molly is a frowny face. So whatever you are, You've got to work at, overcomp- at work at compensating for that and pushing yourself into those other categories as well. Lift your apples means to smile. Your smile does affect you. People feel more comfortable when you smile. They feel like you're on their side. You can even be saying, "No, folks, I just really need to talk to you tonight about the fact that you're sinning against God if you don't tithe." I'm not saying that to make you mad. I love you, but you sin against God. If you don't tithe. Now, it's one thing to say, you know, he's, well, he's not just telling me I'm going to burn into hell for doing it. He's not snarling at me. He's sorry, good for nothing, carnal reprobate. Give your money to God. What's wrong with you? Well, now you're like, good night. His wife not been nice to him for a couple of weeks or something? What's the deal here? So, again, especially when I do all this marriage stuff, I'm telling you, strong family medicine always goes down better with laughter and a smile. And so, but again, you can't smile when you're talking about hell. If you do that, there's something you got. You need to see my counseling guys over the seminary. Finally, number six, phony smiles don't work. So if it's not real, don't do it. Don't try to fabricate it. Don't try to fake it because fake smiles are almost always read well. Number five, voice and vocal variety. Make your voice naturally, naturally authoritative. I tend to talk up here like I do all the time. Use the voice of a roller coaster means what? You go up and down in terms of volume. You go up and down in terms of rate of speed. In other words, you want to vary your voice so that you do not get into the death of communication, and that is a monotone. Uh, Be aware of your telephone voice. Some have said you want to really hear what you sound like. Uh, Call voicemail, talk to yourself, and then listen to yourself. And it will tend to make you kind of nervous. But, again, it's like watching yourself on video. You don't sound like you think you sound. Put your real feelings into your voice. In other words, let your degree of passion flow right in. Learn to tone and relax your voice, which means learning to breathe from the diaphragm so that you don't strain your vocal cords. Learn to protect your voice. In other words, if I'm talking even to you tonight with a microphone, I don't talk to this first row, second row, or third row. I talk back to you. And if I can reach those folks back there, and let's say I didn't have a microphone, I can still figure out how to get my voice back there to you on the back row. And these folks down here, they can hear just fine. So you have to recognize if I'm going to reach a room of this size, I project my voice for those furthest away, not for those that are down here on the front row. By the way, that also affects eye contact. And you tend to, again, some, some people occasionally look up over their audience But some people look down so much they never make contact with the folks in the middle and toward the back as well. All right? Move to number six, words and non-words. Learn to build your vocabulary, not out of arrogance, but just that you want to give your mind to God in every way that you can. Learn to paint word pictures if you can. I struggle in this area. This is something I'm not good at. Number three, beware of jargon. That is wasted words, useless words, words that are not really co- contributing to what you're trying to communicate. Uh, find your level of non-words. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, um, 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 that right there. Our, uh, with my uh, son's generation, they used to, everything used to be concluded with, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know. Stop that. Stop that. Now, I know what's going on. You think there's always got to be sound. No. Sometimes silence can be deafening, which is why at the top of the next page where it says replace your non-words with something more powerful, communicators will tell you that few things are more powerful and more effective in effective communicating than the pause. Because it lets people's mind catch up with you. It lets people's mind come to a stop. I've even done this sometimes when I'm preaching, not to just be playful, but to watch. And every now and then there'll be people that will kind of have zoned me out. I'll see it. And when I do that, they'll look up. What was that? Well, what it was was the silence that they had not heard since I started going at 455 miles an hour about 25 minutes ago. So you don't have, you say, well, they'll think I've forgotten what I'm supposed to say. Well, if you have forgotten what you're supposed to say, one of the things you can always go back and do is just read your text again. Or you can always do what we call Humpty Dumpty and go back and just pick up. Now, what I was saying a moment ago was repeat what you said, and that usually gives your mind a chance to pick up where you need to go ahead, okay? Record yourself, practice with a buddy. Number seven, got to pick up the face, we're out of time. Listener involvement, maintain that eye communication, learn to move appropriately, use visual aids when appropriate, ask questions. And, of course, if you're up here like this, we mean rhetorical questions, not where you're actually going to get feedback, though sometimes you may actually do that as well. Use demonstrations and be creative if you're good at it. But I put in my notes, don't ever be goofy and don't ever be silly. And then number seven, try something new. But again, make sure you have good reason to believe that it will accomplish the end for which you intend. Finally, number eight, humor. Uh, Don't tell jokes just to be a jokester. In fact, here's the deal. Most people are not good at telling jokes. If you're not good at it, I beg you not to do it. What you want to do is realize that fun is better. And it's better than trying to be a jokester. Find the form of humor that works for you. Some of you that are seminary students in here have probably had Dr. Keith Harper or Dr. David Hogg for a class. They're funny in their cynical kind of looking at life from a weird perspective kind of a way. They are. I mean, Dr. Harper is is filled with, uh, with, with lemon juice. He has that sour look on his face all the time, but he says funny stuff out of that kind of... Particular, squirrely way of looking at life. Dr. Hogg is this blooming Canadian who thinks we're all a bunch of, you know, uh, Andy Mayberry RFD types down here. And so he just says things about us that if you realize where it's coming from, it's just funny. It's just funny. So you're funny in your own kind of a way. Then just be funny in your own kind of way. Find the form of humor that works for you. You say, well, Danny, how do I do that? Well, think funny and think friendly. Just think how you are when you're with your friends and you're just cutting up and enjoying yourself with them. And if you can bring that in a healthy way into your communication of God's word, God will bless you and God will use you in a more effective way. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that you do indeed call us to serve you in many different ways. And some of us it is to teach your word. Lord, it is true that what we say is more important than how we say it. But how we say it has never been more important. Help us, Lord, to be the very best communicators of biblical truth that we can be, not for our own sake, but for the glory of God and for the good of those that will sit under our instruction. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.